So I had an earworm stuck in my head for the last two days. And it was probably something that I heard in the background on the radio if if we had Alexa playing 80s hits or something. And it mm-hmm. was, this was the tune. And you can tell me if you recognize it or not. I don't know. I don't know if I want to sing it on the podcast. It's ba 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 I know what it is. You do? Yeah. Do you want me to tell you or? Well, yeah, I do. I'll tell you. um, It's been killing me, but I'll tell you how I found out what it was because it's not a very. Jennifer said, I know it. It's a one hit wonder, but she couldn't figure out who it was either. And so I found a way to find it and I wanted to share that on here. But who who is it? Uh, That song is called Stepping Out and it's by Joe Jackson. That is absolutely incredible that you know that. It is well, yeah, it's a hit, but it's also not. You know, I saw the name pop up, and I thought, "Wow, Michael Jackson's dad uh, <laughs> did this." And uh, but anyway, so it it had been killing me, and finally today I brought it up to Jennifer, and I said, "Do you know this song?" And I hummed it for her, and, and she said, "Now, now I want to know what it is because she had it on the tip of her tongue." And so you go. I went to the site. It's called Midomi dot com m-i-d-o-m-i and it has you um oh sorry just stepped on my dogs here <laughs> it, it has you hum you you click record and it has you hum whatever part of the song you want it's kind of like i don't know what was that app where you can listen to something on tv and it'll tell you what the song is but anyway um all you had to do was hum a, a line of it and i and i did that and four songs came up and Three of them I didn't recognize, but yeah, the third one was "Stepping Out" but, by Joe Jackson. And uh, damn it, Billy, I was just gonna say now that Jonathan and our guest Chad have joined us, I was gonna have you hum <laughs> it to them and see if they can identify it. And you totally gave it away. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> sorry, they can go back and listen to the podcast. But no, no fun, yeah, no fun games on this podcast. It's a catchy little song. I'll, I'll say that. Here I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that uh, Joe Jackson is problematic, right? I don't know. Is he problematic? Is, it, is this like Michael George, Michael Jackson's dad? <laughs> no, it's no. a it's a bald no. white guy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I was telling Gordon before you guys joined. I had the I had the little melody to this song stuck in my head for two straight days. This little keyboard part. And I could not figure it out. And so I found a website where you could just hum it and it gives you, this was one of the answers it gave. So anyway. How did we ever live without such a thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And actually it did make me think of you, Gordon, because you shocked me once when you revealed that one of your all-time favorite 
songs was uh, Julian Lennon. Um, oh, what's that song called? Watching uh, the wheels go around. No, no, Much Julian too late Lennon. For goodbyes. Much too late for because that was one of my favorite songs growing up, and I thought, wow, I have something in common with Gordon Anderson. Mm. But anyways, the the mm. whole era produced Nobody a bunch of one hit wonders, and uh, that's one of them, and that's my story, and that's how I'm starting off this podcast. So, thank you. Guys and dolls. Guys and dolls. Guys and dolls. So our our guest this week is Chad Blackwelder. Thanks for coming on, Chad. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So um I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this know who you are, know all about you. But why don't why don't you uh, share that information for anybody who doesn't already know? Um, well, currently I work for the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. I do food service marketing, um, and my life before that was about thirty years in professional kitchens as a cook and a chef and a, a restaurant owner. So finally wised up and got got out of that racket, and um, yeah. Working for the state, uh, pushing North Carolina products. You have awesome. a really yeah. cool job. Uh, I like watching you on the Facebook and the Instagram. <laughs> Explain a little bit about what your job is, because I would have never thought of this, but it's an awesome job to have. <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm part of the domestic marketing team, and specifically my job deals with the food service end of it. So I work with chefs and other end users and wholesale distributors across the state and of course you know north carolina growers and producers and you know try to find uh try to create new channels for them to sell their products and get them distributed if we can get them in front of um chefs um so we try to get more north carolina products on at more kitchens and on more tables how much of your work is in this area versus like other parts of the state it's kind of spread out, to be honest with you. I mean, we're, you know, we're based in Raleigh, but, um, well, in a, in a normal year, we're all over the state. We obviously have had most of our events canceled at this point. Um, they're still trying to figure out the state fair and the seafood festival. But, yeah, it takes us from the mountains to, from, to Murphy to Manio, right? So all points in between. So it's really cool. I get to stay in touch with a lot of chefs across the state and just pick their brains and hopefully try to help them source food and um, put the right ingredients in front of them. If you're like me and your connection to agriculture is going to the grocery store, going to the farmer's market, that means you don't really know what really good things are being produced around here. What, what sorts of things is this part of the state known for? Well, I mean, you've got the, you know, the usual suspects, especially this time of year, squash, zucchini, you know, beginning of, tomato season, um, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of, uh, just a lot going on in the state. I mean, we have some of the best miso in the world is produced in the Western part of the state. I was talking with a lady yesterday who has a crawfish farm in Beaufort County. I'm gonna try to help them market their products. Um, oh yeah? Wait, 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 wait. You, you, uh, you, you piqued my, my interest here. Can we- Billy's surprised that crawfish or anywhere else but louisiana well yeah well they're in china too but oh my god you got them everywhere that's right all right all right or as john calls them mud bugs yeah i don't know we can we can we can do crawfish in north carolina though i had no idea 
Yeah, it's, uh, this was new to me also. Um, and it's uh, deep water harvesting. And by that, it's like three to four feet deep. Um, so they're, you know, pretty clean diets. I haven't tried the crawfish yet. I've just started reading about it. But um, they look like they're pretty good size. The lady I was talking to yesterday, her name, or the name of her farm is L NLN Farms. Again, they're in Beaufort County. But they said they have the capacity to produce up to 500 pounds a week. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had no idea. You know, I know there were some folks aquaculturing shrimp, but I wasn't aware of crawfish. And from what she was saying, um, they can, they can harvest like 10 months out of the year. So, you know, normally yeah. crawfish season, it kind of dies off, you know, mid July ish, something like that. So, you know, the f more information I get, I'll let you know, but it's pretty exciting. But again, there's so many different new products. Um, you know, just all kinds of different stuff that's being grown and produced in the state that wasn't here, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's awesome. So um, is there any particular industry or segment that has been impacted by the COVID shutdown more than others in North Carolina or just everything? You know, I think probably um, pork and poultry. Um yeah. You know, with the, those large plants we have here in the state, um, you know, the, the, the beef side of it, you know, we don't have as large of farms here in North Carolina, and they typically take their, their animals to smaller um, slaughter facilities. Um, but yeah, I would say pork and poultry. And, you know, that's really where, as we've seen, you know, in the last couple of months, the bottlenecking is at the processing level. You know, um, people can easily social distance on a farm, and but when the product gets to the processing facility, it's damp and it's wet, and people are packed shoulder to shoulder, and they're you know dealing with raw proteins, and you really couldn't design a better place to be a pathogen-enriched environment, to be honest <laughs> with you. Yeah. So that's where I, that's where everything's bottlenecking right now. So you know, a lot of um. A lot of chefs, fortunately, in these days have the skill set to butcher. So a lot of them are getting whole and half animals and doing that themselves. So in the kind of bypassing the, the processing side of it, commercially anyway. And that so, sort of thing, like with your restaurant background, and I want to get to that in a minute. But, you know, if you're a chef and you possess the skills to butcher a whole animal, you can then you know, plan out a menu around that, right? And do something maybe special and and something that's not on the menu every time you go in, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, a lot of, this is changing, but, you know, for a long time, a lot of chefs and cooks were guilty of just kind of using the, the center of the animal, the loin cuts. And those are great, but, you know, those are pretty easy to cook. And I think that, you know, cooks, chefs today want to be challenged to use those other parts, which Gordon, like you said, makes for, to me, a more interesting dish if you're, you know, doing something with the ham or the shank or, or something like that. So yeah, um, it does provide something different. And it's a relief for the, the farmer also, because, you know, you can't just sell pork chops all the time. You got to be able to sell the whole animal. So I'm glad mm -hmm. more people are getting into that style of cooking. Mm-hmm. My wife's mom uses the turkey neck to stir the the gumbo pot because she says it. Uh, yeah. She says it it, it <laughs> adds to the flavor of it. So she uses she uses every part of that animal. Yeah, the neck is the best part to me. Like it when you roast a bird or stew it or whatever. Like or even like when I grill. If I get if I buy a whole chicken, six straight pieces. Like always 
save the neck and throw it on the grill and that's my snack i mean it tastes like thanksgiving <laughs> it's that rich dark meat that makes thanksgiving gravy taste like thanksgiving and actually i got um a whole duck a couple of weeks ago at um the may farms stall at the north Carolina farmers market and i just cooked it gordon i cooked it like a like a little pig i cooked it, mm. smoked it you know indirectly until the skin got crispy and Fortunately, they left the neck on the duck, so that's the first thing that came off that I snacked on was like mm. getting through that crispy skin and then getting all that really good neck meat. To me, it's one mm. of the best parts of the bird. I we several years ago, you had a thing at your house and you had a bunch of ducks on the grill, and I remember you had a skewer with the hearts, and you also we were talking about that the other day, but you also had the necks. I remember you, yeah. you've done that for a long time. All the gays, yeah, all more the you. You, you don't get the neck on from the grocery store, do you? Rarely do you see that. Um, yeah. But like, even when I, if I break down a chicken to grill, I'll, I'll throw the backbone on there, you know, let it get crispy and just pick off all those little good parts. Good, good oh, like cold beer. Like when you, when you spatchcock the bird, you th- throw the, I'd never thought of that. That's throw a great idea. Good, so good, I, I know you guys are going to talk talk more shop, and I know you're going to talk about your your restaurant uh, history and and uh, Sanford, and we might even talk about um, how the pandemic has affected the uh, uh, restaurateurs. But I, I wanted to start all that, Chad, by asking how you even got into the industry. What point in your life did you realize? not only that this is something you love to do, but you were pretty good at it. And I understand you went to culinary school and, and you, um, you came up, you know, you came up through the industry, but at what point in your life did you first think that um, this is something you wanted to pursue? Um, I guess when I was 19 or 20, something like that, but and I was working in a restaurant at that point, but before that um, I went to military school, Hargrave military Academy in Chatham, Virginia. And everyone had to have, if you wanted to acquire rank, you had to, you had to have a job on campus. So they needed help in the mess hall. And it was really like waiting tables, cafeteria style, you know, like we would take food out on trays to the tables. And I I liked it then, you know, it was kind of neat to, uh, um, you didn't have to, to, to line up in formation and march into the mess hall three times a day. If you worked in the mess hall, you could go in early, eat early and get out early and kind of avoid all the marching parts. So I like that part of it. Um, but then after that, I ended up going to Sandhills and got a job, worked in a couple of restaurants down there and enjoyed it. You know, I ended up dropping more classes so I could work longer hours. And one day one of my chefs pulled me to the side and recommended um, culinary school and I knew I liked cooking at that point. I never really considered it to be a career option. Um, so my parents and I went down and looked at Johnson and Wells in Charleston and, you know, obviously fall in love with the city right away. It, it was just, it felt like a natural fit overall, you know, and I didn't mind working that, the hours and I was always learning stuff and actually going to military school prepared me for culinary school because in both situations, you put on the uniforms, you get up early, you get yelled at a lot. So um, I was used to, I remember some of the students complaining about the chefs yelling and I just, you know, had gone through two years of military school. So it was. So Gordon um, Ramsay's character. So Gordon Ramsay's character isn't, I know he's overblown on TV, but was it a lot like that? Is is that a a fair assessment of some of the chefs you, you learned from? Yeah, absolutely. Like the instructors at school were, they were hardcore, you know, there were a couple of, a couple of German chefs, a couple of French chefs. 
they were old school for sure. And some of the chefs I work for, um, when I worked for Raphael down in Southern Ponds, I still keep in touch with Raphael. Um, he's a great guy, but he was, he had, he was a hot headed dude, you know, and there's, <laughs> I, I get it. There's a lot to keep up with in a restaurant from keeping your employees in line to making sure the customers are satisfied and everything in between. But yeah, those guys exist and there are some Gordon Ramsay's out there for sure. <laughs> I worked at a, a high end steak place in college and uh, the guy who ran it went to culinary school and uh, when somebody would order a well done or a medium well steak he would make me go out to them and explain to them why that was a bad idea and if they still if they still went with well done or medium well he would get visibly pissed and he yeah. would go to the very back of the of the cooler and grab the rattiest piece of steak we had left <laughs> and he would just sling it on the grill and then he would cuss for the next five minutes <laughs> yeah it's kind of frustrating i was you know when i in my 20s when i was cooking i was kind of like that you know i hated cooking steaks to you know over medium or whatever but um the older i got like you know whatever people want their steak well done now i will say this um when you if you order your steak well done you aren't going to get the best cut and it's not because the kitchen's mad at you but like say when you're cutting sirloin you're cutting steaks out of that sirloin there's an end piece that has a thick piece of sinew that runs through it and it takes a lot of heat to break that down so those are ideal steaks for medium well and well done steaks okay the more center cut they're going to get used for rare medium rare medium that's oh. i'm sure that played into his decision to do that but the, just the way he acted it, it was uh and he would, what would piss him off even more is he said they don't even know the difference between this and a, and a good cut. It's, it's, and he said, I bet they order yeah. Thousand Island dressing too. And nine, <laughs> nine out of 10 times they did. <laughs> That's funny. I, the term foodie gets thrown around in a perjurative way a lot. And I, I try to avoid that because it conjures up some like pretense or whatever. But I do like the idea. I, I, for some reason, it just cracks me up the the pretentious chef like oh thousand island oh you you common scum you know yeah yeah exactly you rube how dare exactly you. yeah no and you know um when we had the steel pig we had a, a customer um who wanted thousand islands and i'm like you know what i'm like well let's make it you know we have everything to make it with so we took those spicy pickled vegetables that we used to make and chop those up and mayonnaise, ketchup, and some celery seed and Worcestershire sauce. And you've got, you know, pretty good Thousand Island, <laughs> actually. Yeah. You know, really good with chicken wings. So, um, that, but yeah, you know, like you have to, you want to, in a restaurant, you want to try to make people happy, but you certainly can't go overboard with it or you'll be, you know, right. sleeping there every night. Right. I think if you're enthusiastic about food and want to be able to share it with, share things with people that they haven't tried, you kind of have to, go the other way you have to let them know that you're not being pretentious about food and and yeah you know they can get the things they want and maybe if they if they get that they're they'll be more willing to try something that that maybe you as a chef are excited about I, and i've learned i've learned a valuable lesson um, when i go to a, a place that is respected or um or the chef's well known or um or it comes highly recommended even there's a lot of things i don't like but i tend to just trust I trust what's on the, what's in the ingredients, what's on the menu. I do my best not to say, oh, can I get that without so-and-so? Because it was made that way for a reason. And 
and most of the time, more often than not, it's perfect. And uh, uh, well, not perfect, but you know, it 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 was it tastes great. Tastes how it was how it was meant to be. And yeah. um, and you know, when I was younger, I probably wouldn't have tried many of those things, but. I guess um, yeah, palates mature over over yeah, the years. <laughs> Chad, Billy asked you what got you into the restaurant business, and I don't know if you've gotten this as much. And and I should back up a little bit. You mentioned the Steel Pig. If you if you're listening to this in Sanford and you know Chad from his restaurants, that that is the Steel Pig, and before that, Bella Bistro. But what made you want to get out? What made you say I I've had enough of this? Let me do something uh, else. Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gallons of it man <laughs> i was surrounded by tubs of thousand dollar dress i'm like what am i doing that <laughs> sounds like heaven know, to me. I, uh, <laughs> right with a strong sour cream on the cement yeah um yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah just at, it was at that point i'd been cooking for about 27 years 28 years something like that and uh just i still love food but i just i, I was burnt out i was really really burnt out i think that's really what it came down to from and look we had great a great staff and great customers, but it was just the hours were long and um, I was ready to, you know, start having weekends and being able to go to family events and that sort of thing. And um, when, when we sold the restaurant, we sold it in 2014. Like, Has I it been that long? I was gonna do. Yeah, it's been six years. Wow. It's crazy, right? Um, but wow. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I kind of took about, I don't know, five or six months and just sort of detox from the restaurant business, but ended up... Um, you know, working, doing some contract work and kitchens and cons- some consulting work and ended up working for a food distribution company that led to this job now. So it all worked out, but I felt like it was the right time for me to, to leave. So, um, yeah, the opportunity presented itself. So I took advantage of it. That's right. That was, I, I do remember 2014 because I can remember, the political campaigns I was working on that year and via one of them, you and I got the opportunity to go pond fishing several times that summer. That was the summer you sold. That was the summer of Chad, the fishing summer. I couldn't catch a single damn fish. I I just can't do it. They just, they just, they just know. They run away from me. Yeah, yeah, that was right. That was a, that was a fun summer. We did we did a lot of pond fishing that summer. That's sure. right. And we were going to, every time we saw a pond, we were going to go knock on the, uh, the 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 door associated with the pond and the door of the house associated with the pond and be like y'all got pond fish y'all yeah. pa- y'all pond got any fish but <laughs> that's what we make a great t-shirt y'all, that's y'all right got pond fish yeah um, yeah <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun but yeah so we had we i bought into bella in 03 this is how long it was ago in 03 then we changed it to the still pig in 08 and then we sold it in 2014 it seems like a lifetime ago wow Wow. No, you changed in 2010. And I'm going to tell you why I know. Because this is an interesting story. Chad and I have been friends for a long time. I met my wife through Chad. She was working at Bella and that was in 2008. And then oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. in 2010, and I'm going to do my favorite thing to do on this podcast. Um, I had just been fired from the Sanford Herald by Billy Lake. <laughs> that's, that's four, that is four straight weeks. <laughs> fired and i remember you called me chad and you were like hey we're shutting down the restaurant for a week changing the um changing the concept and the menu etc etc but i'm doing some work in the restaurant and you had me helping you 
I think changing some, replacing some light fixtures, maybe some painting or something. But I, you, you called me because you knew I was out of work, thanks to Billy. And, <laughs> right. and that was, that was yeah, in like yeah. April, I think, of 2010. I made a phone call the next week just... to see how Gordon was doing. And someone said, yeah, he's working at the Steel Pig now. And I'm, oh, man, he's, he's a <laughs> waiter <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, he looks like I've ruined another life. He'd probably make more money there. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That would make more money. (laughs) Got that upgrade. Exactly. (laughs) So I've got my buddy. Oh, there's a puppy. Archie. Oh, it's a pretty puppy. Yeah, he's he's a good boy. So I know Georgie. There's there's another critter. Yeah. Georgie. Uh, Since since we don't do a video version of this podcast, we'll have to have Billy take some screenshots of when I got when we oh. have our critters visible and by the way <laughs> not not only did I introduce Gordon to Jordan but I introduced Gordon and Jordan to Georgie that's right yeah that dog you just saw would uh was our neighbor's dog originally but he would follow us when we walked by their house and eventually the woman who had him was unable to take care of him and so he just came to live with us yeah it was a good match Everyone I love, I know through Chad. That's right. That's right. I'm the fun. I'm the funnel of love. <laughs> <laughs> so when we, uh, when I, I talked to you yesterday to schedule out the time, you brought up that uh, you you had been on the rant in times past, and that had to have been in like 2008 or 2009. You were one yeah. of our guests back when we were a radio show that had yet to be unceremoniously booted from the air. What do you remember about that? I remember we were talking about pirates at one point. That's really all I remember about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure we talked about food, but then it was pirates, and then yeah. But now that was at uh, that was at CC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. WDCC. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ninety point five. The beat. Hey. Yeah, I think so that. that yeah, I remember pirates. You had to be one of probably our earliest guests. Oh wow! Cool. So you did. You rest full circle. Your restaurant, um, I, I'm not, I didn't look at your books or anything, but you, you guys seem to do pretty well in a town that um, hasn't always been kind to restaurant owners. There have been a lot you've seen come and go for not and not for reasons because they were burned out, but because of reasons, you know, they just couldn't make it and in a city like this. And uh, um, I think we're before the virus hit, we had a slew of new restaurants come through. What are the challenges of, of I, and maybe this isn't any city, but what are the challenges of, of running a restaurant in a city like Sanford? And how do you, um, succeed, how do you succeed here? That's a good question. I, I always felt like Sanford was the toughest market that I'd ever cooked in. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's hard to stay on people's radar because I don't know why that is. And maybe that's changed since we sold the restaurant. You know, downtown has its challenges also, parking and that sort of thing. But if the if the food's good and the service is good, people are going to find a place to park, I think. Um, but yeah, um, Sanford is it's different, man. It's like you've uh, you have to kind of it's almost like there's a magnifying glass on you. Like you really have to watch what you do as far like as far as pricing goes. Like people will if you get too out of pocket on pricing, people will remind you of that, but then they'll drive to carry your Southern Pines and pay more than that somewhere else. Um, that's the frustrating part because the cost of the food that I was buying 
it was the same price that what they pay in carry in Southern Pines, but I can't, I can't charge as much. So my margin is a little thinner, you know, in a smaller town. And we saw more of that when we were Bella Bistro. So when I bought the restaurant, it was Bella Italian restaurant. And then I kind of wanted to branch out and do more of what I'd done cooking previously, which is a little more, um, American, you know, regional American cooking because the focus on Southern food. So we kind of started branching off into that and call it Bella Bistro. And during that time, we kind of became a bit of a special occasion restaurant in Sanford, even though we never had white tablecloths or anything like that or crystal, but we kind of kind of became a special occasion restaurant. Then when the market tanked, you know, it was like, all right, we've got to make a decision here. So that's when we decided to rebrand ourselves and change the name and do more more casual food. Um, yeah. And we lowered the prices, but the price point stayed about the same because people bought more food. So it worked out and just being more casual, more approachable, especially during that time. Um, after all that, comfort food was comfort food was really big. You saw a lot of gastropubs popping up, that sort of thing. So we kind of wanted to, to play into that and not be so fine dining, I guess. Yeah, and I'm sure you probably would have appreciated this more had you still been in business here, but you're, you're seeing um, uh, across the street from where you were uh, with the smoke and barrel, and then you've got breweries popping up in Sanford. Uh, what's your thoughts on the, the brewery industry and, and how Sanford has embraced Hugger Mugger and, you know, you got the new one coming and you have Camelback. Yeah. I think it's why, why do you think those are, are, are doing well here? Um, I think they do well everywhere. Like if you look at the failure rate of restaurants, it's the success rate for breweries is polar opposite. It, you know, they just have a higher success rate than restaurants do. I think that um, because of their casual vibe, you know, a lot of times there's outdoor seating and I love the food that Randall's doing at Camelback. I like the fact that Hugger Mugger has the different food trucks that come in that keeps people's interest peaks a lot. Um, it keeps the crowds coming in. And they always have good fun beer. You know, I like the fact that they are brewing their own, but they have um, some some other local stuff. I've been uh, I've been into the dry ciders lately, like stuff from James Creek Cidery, which is down in Cameron. Really, really good stuff. So I didn't I know there was a... yeah, it's uh, actually not that far past where my mom lives, where we used to fish across okay. the street from where my mom yeah. was. Yeah, it was an old orchard, old peach orchard, and. A couple bought it. I um, haven't met them yet, but they it's, it looks great. They've redone the place. It's called James Creek Cidery, and um, Hugger Muggers had their cider on for a couple months now. Um, but it's yeah. really good. It's really dry. It's kind of like, uh, like a cross between a, a nice dry beer and like a Sauvignon Blanc. Hmm. It's kind of hard to hard to describe, but it's really really tasty. Great with food also. Um, and botanist and barrels out of Durham, they have some really great ciders that Hagermacher also. I got a really good plum cider the other day. That was nice. But wow. yeah, I'm glad that Sanford is embracing the the breweries and the other. Was it Wild Dogs? Is the third one this coming? Yeah. Yeah, they're. Um, I, the last I talked to them, and I, th- I think that it's a moving target in that business. But um, I think they were looking to open sometime next month. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. One of, one of my yeah. favorite. Well, you're, you're one of my favorite people to go eat with Chad because like everywhere you go it's like you know what the coolest thing on the menu is and that's that those experiences sort of inspired me a couple years ago when I did a sort of a restaurant feature once a week uh, before we had our print publication it was called the rant for lunch 
and I just featured like a different local dish from a local restaurant. I think every week for the second half of the year or something. I think I had 26 or 27 of them, but what are some of your like favorite little like hid, hiding in plain sight dishes that you can only get in Lee County? For example, I remember you, uh, that the, the, when I was talking about coming to work with you for a week to get the steel pig open, you were like, and when you get here, I'll have you the best sandwich you've ever had. And it was the first time I'd ever had a liver pudding sandwich. First time I'd ever had liver pudding. It was on toast with mustard and onions from Mrs. Winger's. And I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Like, yeah, that's a perfect Little, little did you realize he was trying to prank you and it backfired on him. <laughs> <laughs> like, God, he really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, good, that's a great um, example. Yeah, the, the fried liver pudding at Mrs. Winger's. Um, and if you ask some nice little griddle onions and throw that on there with some American cheese and some mustard on toast, yeah. it's delicious. You know, I love the little Hispanic places we have around here. Um, there's a couple of places over in Kendall that are great. Um, what used to be El Mocahete. I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, El Mocahete is still there. Oh, you're talking oh. about La, it's La Michoacana. It's, okay. yeah. it's got that the, the orange awning there in That's that strip mall that. on Industrial. Yeah. yeah, that place is great. Those and like going to the uh, Hispanic market um, on Horner Boulevard, you always find really cool stuff there. Um, Thomas's Butcher Shop, you know, they have great head cheese there, which makes another good sandwich. We used to do oh, that yeah? at a restaurant. We didn't, we didn't serve it, but we would we would snack on it. We did like a, an Italian loaf, kind of like a hoagie, but we did the sliced head cheese instead and lettuce, tomato, oil and vinegar, all that good stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of just little hidden kind of country gems like that. Um, Again, butcher shop, great place to get some of that, you know, the local sauces. It's kind of dry cured. Those yeah. are always good treats. So you can get head cheese at Thomas's Butcher Shop. Yes, indeed. You can. South meat, head cheese. I didn't yeah. know that. All that fun stuff. You got to go check it out. So one of the things that you're doing now through the um, Department of Agriculture is you have a, like a weekly interview with, uh, with, with chefs across the state, right? Yeah, we started doing that. I guess it's been a couple of months now, but yeah, it's mainly chefs. I've also interviewed some farmers. Um, mm-hmm. We had Randy Lewis on this past week. He owns Randlew Dairy. Um, that's in the Eli Whitney area near Snow Camp. Um, but some of the best milk you've ever had. They've just started doing ice cream as well. Um, and actually, it's a gelato because it's a little lower fat than regular ice cream. But it's old uh-huh. school. Like they do very little to it. They don't. Um, you know, add any kind of stabilizer or emulsifier to it. They pasteurize it, put it in a bottle. So it gets the layered fat at the top. You got to shake it up really good. Um, mm, but yes, yeah, so we're layer talking to fat at the top. On a <laughs> delicious. But yeah, we're just talking to different people within the supply chain to see not just not just talk about the pandemic, but also about them and their background and how they got into the industry and you know some of the challenges they faced before the pandemic and how they've dealt with the pandemic kind of you know making that pivot it's been really interesting to talk with chefs and restaurant owners and hear how they pivoted um a good friend of mine has a place down in southern pines and uh kurt's Cucina, and they're yeah they're, they're going to change their their format moving forward um he's going for a more casual vibe he's going to put some seating outside um so that's like a permanent that, change due to this that he's yeah wow yeah. and his food works really well to go um and they've stayed really really busy through all this um you know some places 
haven't been that fortunate, but he's taking advantage of that and seeing that, you know, he's got a younger crowd in market too as well. So he's going to take advantage of that too. Mm-hmm. So. I was, yeah, um, was going to ask uh, just um, based on what you just said there, I know the, the pandemic has been brutal for, for the industry, but there's got to be some positives that maybe restaurants have taken away. You just said um, maybe they're better adapting to outdoor seating or they're getting better at their curbside delivery or and things. What are, what are you finding restaurant, how restaurants have adapted to this and maybe will benefit them when all this is over? I definitely think the to go and curbside service, I mean, that was um, kind of on the rise anyway with, you know, chow now and DoorDash and stuff like that. And this is, pandemic has really kind of kicked that into overdrive. Um, one of the chefs that I interviewed a few weeks back was talking about how they had at her restaurant had uh, talked about doing um, online ordering for two years and they figured it out in two days because they had to. Um, so again, I think people are going to shift and go a little more casual, even the, the, even the more fine dining places, which you don't really see a whole lot of fine dining anymore. Um, but the upper end chef driven restaurants, you know, they're making those changes as well to figure out, you know, that like a pan roasted snapper with this and that and the other doesn't really look good in, in a to go box. But if you can start doing really cool sandwiches, you know, and house cut fries or chips, stuff like that, that looks good in a to go box, then, you know, you're going to meet with more success. I think that way at a cheaper price for the customer as well. So, Chad, I've only gotten to see a couple of the uh, interviews you've done, but you're really good at it. Um, and I, I don't want to say it was a surprise, but you know, your background's not in doing that stuff, but you have a lot of really good questions and I find the conversations interesting. They're, they're you know, range a lot of different topics. Do you just kind of wing it? Do you do a lot of preparation? How does, what's your process? I, um, well, depending on the chef, um, but I'll spend an hour or so that day before the interview so it's still fresh with me but I will um kind of cull what information I can off the internet about them stalk them a little bit see what they've been up to it's easier when they have obviously an article or something that I can kind of refer to but um so that and they find helps. their home address and right <laughs> yeah. binoculars yep sleep in their basement for about a week without them knowing um <laughs> you know stuff like that no but and actually a lot of them I know already I've known them for a while so that helps out also well, that's that's interesting because that's what we did for this interview. We've been in your basement for a full week. Thought I heard some, yeah. I heard some racket. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's been fun to do, and um, you know, I like I like talking shop with with chefs, so it's it's a, it feels right. So have you have you learned a lot from it, or? Yeah, I have. Um, Again, you know, just how people, everybody is handling this a little bit different and just, you know, picking their brain about that. And again, um, kind of diving into how they got into the industry is always a fun conversation. I think a lot of parallels between different people's career paths. Sure. Well, Chad, I have a sort of off topic thing, but um, there's one thing that I always think of, I think of you on is I watched this show called Below Deck. You ever watch this show? It's like people who work on a yacht. No, I haven't seen it. It's awesome. You need to watch it. But the best right. part is the chef and like the cool things the chef does. Have you ever considered working on a yacht? I guess is the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I never have, man. But That's no, he 
like, and it's the thing you were talking about, about like the thousand Island dress that made me think of it is like this, these people are like crazy rich people and they want French fries, you know? Yeah. And so he has to hand make French fries because he doesn't have a bag of a ride of French fries on the, on the $20 million super yacht. That's fun. I'll check that out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, people below people deck, some, check it out. Okay. I'll definitely check that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of the requests you get sometimes is pretty interesting. Um, it's like, man, you guys know anything about what goes on in a restaurant? <laughs> yeah. And they don't, and that's fine. But you know, that's, that's, you know, our job to try to figure out. So how, how real are these, uh, reality shows like that of, about cooking? It seems like it's pretty popular these days. Yeah. Uh, not very. I mean, really? one, one of my favorite shows is the original, kitchen nightmares when it was on um, oh yeah the uh, bbc like those were good and like yeah gordon Ram- gordon ramsay can be an ass but like and for the you know for the american <laughs> versions you know, i'm sure the producers are like all right gordy let's really ramp know, it up really ramp it up in this next scene but when you watch an old version on bbc like he really cares about the restaurants and um yeah he's like playing gordon a character ramsay. On. Yeah, he's playing. Like, he's playing a character now. But back then, like he, like he always gave great advice. He's successful for a reason. Yeah, he's a hard ass. I get it. But like you know, when you have that kind of record, and he comes into your house to try to fix it, you might want to listen to him. So I enjoy those. But now it's kind of you know a character of himself or whatever. So mm-hmm. I'm not really that interested anymore. <laughs> or the do you watch any of the ones where it's like a competition? I, like, I just chopped. No, you know I like top chef for a while but i haven't seen it in a while and actually the shows that i like to watch now are like shows like munchies on vice you know those kind of cooking shows. yeah yeah love, with uh, what's his name maddie matheson is that yeah i love i love or, maddie matheson what's that guys that guy action bronson yeah guy, action he's bronson. awesome he, he's <laughs> hilarious him and his crew when they go out and you know that's yeah. to me that's funny those kind of that seems way more real to me than um, that's that's kind of an Anthony Bourdain to. type thing, you know? Like yeah, absolutely. Man on the he street type dude. Yeah, he definitely yeah. made that format popular. I, I don't I've I've watched some like Master Chef and Master Chef Junior and it cracks me up when they expect me to believe that like a nine year old is putting out this like rustic <laughs> liver pate. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm sure there's some great child cooks out there, but they're not chefs. Like if you can run a <laughs> restaurant on a busy Saturday night and manage a crew of knife wielding maniacs in the kitchen and put out 200 covers and then you're a chef, but you're not a 14 year old who's a chef. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just, I, I'm sure there's so much going on off camera on those shows, guiding those kids. I don't think it's fake necessarily, but, but did, what, what Chad did, yeah, go ahead. Chad, didn't you do some some competitions? I remember something about that. Yeah, um, right after we well, I guess about six months after we sold the restaurant. Yeah, um, buddy Kurt, who I was just talking about, he was involved. He was my years ago when I was right after I graduated from culinary school. I worked at Pinehurst, and Kurt was my chef there, and we've maintained our friendship ever since. Then. He's been kind of a mentor. He called me up, and he was like, "Hey, I'm in this cooking competition." Um, it's teams of three. Do you want to be on my team? I'm like, sure. That sounds great. So it was Kurt, his sous chef, Ryan, and myself. And it was, um, it was called, 
North Carolina, got to DNC. It was sponsored by the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. And at the time, Pate Dawson, which was a wholesale distributor, they're now Cheney Brothers. You might have seen their, their black trucks out on the highway delivering food. Yeah. Um, so the two sponsored this event. And basically, they would go town to town and set up like, like brackets where different chefs would compete to get to the final in that particular round, be it in Wilmington or Charlotte or whatever. And then the winners of those cities would come together at the end of that season and compete. The last two times it was in Raleigh to compete for the championship. It was like five grand and some cool chef jackets and some other kind of goodies and that sort of thing. It was mainly That's... to promote North Carolina products and restaurants and chefs. So I competed with, on his team and we made it to the finals in Raleigh and we lost by three tenths of a point. I'll never forget that. Um, Mm. When, when, when we when we were um when we lost you know i talked to the the organizers of and told them that i just sold my restaurant had plenty of time on my hands if they needed help with anything to let me know and uh they hired me to help with the competition so for the the next couple seasons i was the what they called the chef referee so i kind of was the <laughs> kitchen proctor and you know I got to curate the pantry for the chefs, which was so much fun um, working with local producers and growers and um, distributors to get those products. We had this huge refrigerator truck that we would bring with us and we would set it up with shelves inside. Like you were like, it was a grocery store aisle with all these killer ingredients, a lot of them from North Carolina. So they had access to that and they could just, they, they would cook. And it was a serious, it was a chef's competition. Like it wasn't like you had to work because we sold tickets to this. Like, when I competed in it, we cooked for 180 some people one night, and each team of three does three courses. So the the diner sits down, they download an app on their phone so they can vote on each course. But they sit down to two appetizers, two entrees, and two desserts. So you got to really sure cool. Yeah, yeah. because it's a they're paying for this experience. So you know, and keeping six chefs in line all day, and you know, in a timely fashion. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And that's how I met a lot of the folks that I work with now was through that competition. So that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You, uh, you got, you gave Jordan and I some tickets to that one time, probably 2016 or so, I want to say, and everything was awesome. It was so good. That was in Raleigh, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to see what the chefs would come up with because you had, I mean, you had about eight or nine hours. It was a brutal, it was a long day. And, um, Time goes quickly. You've got not that much time to conceptualize your dish. You got a few more hours to finalize it, so you can kind of move in a different direction if you need to early on in the day. But by noon, you know, we had to have your written menu. You could make a few changes to it up to like three o'clock. Then we had to get menus printed and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Again, it was like, and it was crazy because you know there were some big time chefs who didn't make it that far, which is always surprising and. The whole thing about that competition is really not who's the best chef, but who's the best chef that day, because you're not cooking in your kitchen, you're cooking in somebody else's kitchen, and you can bring some limited smallwares with you, but you don't know ingredients are going to be thrown at you until you get there, and then you've got to execute, so it was fun to watch, you know, the creative juices flow and watch those folks in the kitchen make it happen. Did you get to uh, choose the ingredients you threw at people? Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a lot of fun. Did you try to strike a balance between something obvious and something maybe pretty off the wall, like squid ink or something? <laughs> like, how, how did you how did you choose those things? I never really 
did like that's what I hate about Chopped is they they throw. And look, I love anchovies, but I don't want them in dessert. You know, like, yeah. I never really liked that. And so I didn't I didn't make the chefs do that. That was just I thought that was kind of dumb. You know, I wanted to yeah, put that's weird. ingredients in front of them that make sense so they can do what they do best and not figure out how to like you said use squid ink in a dessert or something. <laughs> and look, again, people are paying good money for this, so people don't want it to be too to be too weird. They want it to be good and thoughtful, but you know, so I kind of watched over the ingredients like that. And it was funny. Um, there was a certain time where it seemed like this was maybe three or four years ago, but every restaurant was using pork belly and cauliflower on everything. Yeah. And there was about a two month run, three month run where I didn't put scallops or pork belly or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts. I was so tired of seeing Brussels sprouts on every dish. So I just kind of <laughs> would occasionally take those ingredients and, you know, not put them in front of the chefs because they would go to them immediately. So, um, you know, you just have to kind of watch your ingredients and make sure you're not being repetitive from round to round as well. Yeah. You notice whenever they have a weird ingredients, ingredients, the person usually just grinds it up and put it in ice cream yeah, for, well, for the dessert. Very, you know? <laughs> yeah. Very last minute. I have a squid cream. ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the salty and sweet it might go together. There was one chef who did. <laughs> <laughs> was one chef who did a uh, arugula ice cream, which was really really good. Oh wow! It was, yeah, it was bright green. It was delicious. It had a little bit of the spice to it. I think he had mint in there also. But um, yeah, it was always neat to see what they came up with. Did you ever see something? And I'm not asking you to slam anybody, but did you ever see an, an idea that just bombed spectacularly? Yes, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also like whenever. Like whenever they're plating the dish and something's going wrong, like I can't, I couldn't really as a chef referee, I couldn't really give them any advice because that would, you know, kind of not, got to be careful doing stuff like that. You don't want to favor sure. one team over the other. But there was one time where the chef was plating up his dish. And he made a butter sauce and it was starting to separate. And you could see it separating. And as he put it on each plate, because the plates are hot, you know, we heat up so customers not getting cold food. And it was already breaking, and when we put it on that hot plate, it started to break even more. And he saw him stressing over it, but I couldn't say anything, you know, until the very end when I was like, hey, the next time that happens, just if you add a little bit of water to it, it'll, you know, temporarily re-emulsify, at least to get you through plating. But you can't give that advice during, you know, sometimes you kind of have to watch them crash a little bit. Um, <laughs> but there were a, a few times where one of, one of the – the stipulations about the contest is like we as the organizers and the folks who manage the competition, we could change the rules if we needed to. And I watched one chef in Charlotte take, he butchered and cooked like three cases or four cases of quail and used like half of it. And I'm like, that's not very, that's not a very chef thing to do. You know, it's a lot of, and we would always, let me back up for a second, wherever we, whatever channel we went to, I would immediately contact the local food bank or soup shelter, that sort of thing. So the food that we didn't use, it went there. So the food didn't get wasted. But after I saw that, I kind of changed how we presented protein options to the chefs. Instead of having three or four different game birds, four or five different seafoods, I would pick the protein and they would draw straws for which protein they would use. And it made ordering a lot easier. It saved, you know, the competition was a, was a business also. We had to make money. And it just kind of mitigated that risk of waste as well so there were certain things i watched chefs do where we kind of i could find the competition a little more going forward so we didn't have that kind of waste but, but you know again it's the chess competition so 
we also started after that, like I would also judge being the kitchen proctor. So when I saw that kind of waste, I would judge that against them because it is not just mm -hmm. a cook competition, but a chef's competition. I love to cook and sometimes I'm better at it than others. And that sort of thing is like the idea fascinates me, but I know I couldn't do it just to all the, the, the things that separate somebody who likes to cook at home from a chef, you know, those are the things that I, I don't think I could juggle, but it's yeah, fascinating it was, to watch. It was, and like, I know you do a lot of, well, you, I don't think you've got them in a while, but you still do the, the barbecue, barbecue competitions, don't you? Yeah. It got canceled this year because of COVID and I had to miss it last year. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to get back into that. Yeah. And see, that's a different, that kind of competition takes a lot of skill, a lot of honing your craft, but Again, it's a the chef competition was just it was very different from that. You know, this had a lot yeah. of moving parts and a lot of multi courses and and that and again working in a kitchen you've never been in before is always a challenge. You know, just it can be frustrating. Like, where's a ladle or where's right. the spatula? I'm spending five minutes looking for a spatula. You know. Well, I think um, we're nearing the end of our time, Chad. But do you want to tell people where they can find the interviews that you're doing for the Got to Be NC? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, we're doing on Instagram at um, so them every Wednesday. They go live too, but they're also they're recorded, so they're on the Instagram page. You can find them there. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we've got a good lineup coming up for July and, and August. So looking forward to that. I think he he cut out on my end when he started saying that address. Yeah, yeah, it's like it, oh, it slowed down or something. That might have been a sort of a weak connection, but I, that's yes. that's at got got to BNC. Yes, at got to BNC um, on Instagram. On Instagram, yep, we do them live every Wednesday at two, but they are recorded, so you can find them um, on our Instagram page as well. And I'm, uh, some... I'm enjoying I'm, I'm enjoying this video actually. The, I'm doing some play out music here. <laughs> I can't hear anything. Uh, it's probably because I'm sharing my screen. Sorry. Hang on. Yeah. All right. I yeah. Stopped. What was that other tab you had up, Billy? Nah. Yeah. nah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. It was good. To see yeah. This is great. Time. We'd love to yeah. have you back. And we'll have to uh, we'll we'll have to get together over some delicious food when when conditions allow. Hey, anything you guys want to say real quick about the upcoming edition of The Rant before we go? I'm excited for it. I think it's going to have a lot of interesting things. We've got a, a lot of guest columnists this month that, who are going to talk to us about current events in maybe ways that, that we are unable. So I'm looking forward to seeing all those and seeing what people come up with. Yeah, I got say. a slight spoiler alert. I read one of them uh, in looking over things today. And uh, for people that think we're just a left-wing liberal, you know, rag that doesn't show both sides, we have a guest columnist that very much showed another side this this month. So I think you're going to get a lot of different angles. That's right. That's right. So anyway. <laughs> so you'll be able to get that on Wednesday, July 1st, wherever you get the rant. Wherever rants are given out. Oh, That's and uh, we can't share this news yet either, but be on, the, be on the lookout for some big rant news coming in early July. Whenever we feel like we can share that, we will. I yeah. don't think I know this. What? Yeah, you do. <laughs> Are you going to kill me? Oh, it's happening. It's happening on... Uh... We will publicly execute John at Depot Park. <laughs>
<laughs> yes. Oh, end it all.